Let me invite you to turn to Job chapter 3 this morning. Job chapter 3. It's one thing to respond with worship when the calamity first strikes. The Lord gave and the Lord take away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And how can we accept good from God and not adversity? It's a totally different thing to be faithful to God when you're experiencing the pain and the suffering day after day. Job has been lying in torturous misery for at least seven days now, probably more like weeks and months. His possessions have been completely destroyed and stolen. His children have been killed by a storm. And most recently, his health has been taken away from him. How should believers respond in the deepest of trials? If I took a survey of genuine Christians, perhaps just the people here in this room, I think the majority response would be, the way that we respond in trials is to buck up and deal with it. Just get through it, work hard, grind, and make it through. Recognize that God is in control and we will be fine. Amazingly, what you won't find in this third chapter of Job is Job trying to have a stiff upper lip and to work his way through it. You won't find him ignoring his problem or trying to make sure everyone has a good view of him. I'm going to make sure that I hold myself together. Instead, you find Job in this third chapter as transparently honest with himself and with others. He hurts so much that as we'll see in this chapter, he wishes that he were dead. Let's read with beginning with chapter 3 and verse 1. Afterward, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. And Job said, Let the day perish on which I was to be born, and the night, and the night which said, A boy is conceived. May that day be darkness. Let not God above care for it, nor light shine on it. Let darkness and black gloom claim it. Let a cloud settle on it. Let the blackness of the day terrify it. As for that night, let darkness seize it. Let it not rejoice among the days of the year. Let it not come into the number of the months. Behold, let that night be barren. Let no joyful shout enter it. Let those curse it who curse the day, who are prepared to rouse Leviathan. Let the stars of its twilight be darkened. Let it wait for light but have none. Let it not see the breaking dawn because it did not shut the opening of my mother's womb or hide trouble from my eyes. Why did I not die at birth, come forth from the womb and expire? Why did the knees receive me and why the breasts that I should suck? For now I would have lain down and been quiet. I would have slept then. I would have been at rest with kings and with counselors of the earth who, delight, who rebuilt ruins for themselves or with princes who had gold who were filling their houses with silver or like a miscarriage which is discarded. I would not be as infants that never saw light. There the wicked cease from the raging, and there the weary are at rest. The prisoners are at ease together. They do not hear the voice of the taskmaster. The small and the great are there, and the slave is free from his master. Why is light given to him who suffers, and life to the bitter of soul, who long for death but there is none, and dig for it more than for hidden treasures, who rejoice greatly and exult when they find the grave? 
Why is light given to a man whose way is hidden and whom God has hedged in? For my groaning comes at the sight of my food and my cries pour out like water. For what I fear comes upon me and what I dread befalls me. I am not at ease, nor am I quiet, and I am not at rest, but turmoil comes. You've probably never memorized a verse from this chapter or claimed a promise from it, and you may have never heard a sermon preached from it. And if I were to be honest with you, I would not preach from it if I were not preaching expositionally through this book. That is, helping you, helping to explain each part of the book as we go through. I, I would not normally go to a passage like this because this is not how we often think of believers when they're going through trials. We think that they are, like I said earlier, we are the people who have the stiff upper lips and are able to recognize that God is in control like we saw last week and the week before with Job saying, the Lord gave and the Lord take, take, has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. But the Holy Spirit did inspire this chapter and I hope that in studying through it this morning and as you reflect on it throughout this week, that you will benefit from understanding God's ways more accurately and how believers do respond in the midst of the deepest of trials. And what we'll see through this chapter is that the deepest trials in life come with the deepest sorrows. Beginning in Job chapter 3 and going all the way to the end of chapter 37, Job discusses with his three friends and then later a fourth friend comes on the scene. He discusses with them about his suffering and how they should respond to it, how Job specifically should respond to it, and what's God's role in this whole thing. In this uh, first part of the chapter, we see that Job despises the day of his birth. Verses 1-19, through 19, look at verse 1. After Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. This first verse is really a summary of what he's about to say in the next 18 verses. Job is speaking now. Notice the first word of the verse. Afterward, after these things had already taken place. After he had all his possessions taken and uh, destroyed. After his children were killed. After he had this, uh, this disease come upon him. And so Job curses the day of his birth. Literally, it has the idea of treating lightly. The word curse, to treat lightly or view with contempt. And in order for us to understand what that means, because it sounds like Job is sinning here, we need to look at the next several verses through verse 10 because that's where the answer comes. What you're going to find in these verses, these first 10 verses, that Job does not curse God. This is what his wife told him to do in chapter 2, verse 7. But instead, uh, chapter 2, verse 9, excuse me. But instead, Job curses the day of his birth. Okay, so there's a little bit of a difference there. I hope we'll talk about that as as we as we get there. Two things that we need to consider as we read through Job's cursing his birth. Number one, remember what God was trying to do with Job. God was not trying to prove to Satan that Job was a piece of wood, that he was unmoved by anything that came his way, but that he was a righteous man, that even in pain and suffering, Job would not curse God and die. God was proving to Satan that Job was real and that sometimes suffering 
does take place, and sometimes it feels like it's going to break you, but a real Christian is not going to break faith. And that's what Job, a real believer, I should say, because he wasn't following Christ at this time. He's following God. So the first thing we need to understand is that God's not trying to prove that Job is a piece of wood. Secondly, Job does not question God or why the righteous suffer. That will come. He will do that at some point, and he will later have to repent. We'll see that in the coming chapters. But here we see him at the depth of his agony, at the, at the hardest time in his life. And so we see the expression of Job's pain and suffering in verses 3 through 10 when he curses the day of his birth. And basically he, he says in these verses that I wish I never were born. Notice the repetition of the word let in these verses. Verse 3, let the day perish on which Verse 4, in the middle, let not God above. Verse 5, three times let. Verse 6, you see it all throughout. So he's basically wishing that he were never born. Let that day in which I was supposed to be born, let that day never happen. See, he's not ready to curse God and die at this point. But he's certainly ready to curse the day that he was born. And so he does this in verses 3 through 5 particularly. Um, verse 3, let the day perish on which I was to be born and the night which said a boy is conceived. And then he goes on and talks about uh, how that should happen. Now, Job is not the only believer in the Bible to curse the day of his birth. Jeremiah chapter 20, verses 14 through 18. Jeremiah, remember, was a prophet. And he was not being accepted very well by the people. He no longer wanted to be a prophet. His friends had betrayed him. His enemies were pursuing him. And the message that he was preaching was not a very acceptable one. And so Job or Jeremiah in chapter 20 curses the day of his birth. But in addition to that, Job, in, in addition to cursing the day of his birth, he also curses the night of his conception. Look at the, the end of verse 3 kind of highlights that for us. And the night which said a boy is conceived. And then in verses 6 through 9 we see that shown. As for that night, that is, the night on which I was conceived, let darkness seize it. Let it not rejoice among the days. And he goes on to say that he wishes that night had never happened. If you're not going to take away the day from the calendar on which I was born, then at least take the night away from which I was even conceived. <clears throat> and um, <clears throat> so, <clears throat> excuse me. So Job is not very uh, satisfied with that, having to go through this trial. He's, he's, um, he's struggling. He's reeling. He says at the end of verse 9 that let it, re let it um, wait for light but have none. Let it not see the breaking of dawn. The sunrise is normally thought of as a good time, a time of new beginning, new light. And yet for him, it was a time that would reveal his struggles for him. He would be in pain over and over again. So Job curses the day of his birth. And I think we all recognize that this is similar to having a protest against God. He has a protest against the day of his birth. And there is a fine line, I must say, between cursing the maker of the day and the day of the maker. Job is cursing the latter, the day of the maker. He's saying, I wish that day never had happened. And we recognize that since God is in control of the day, there's a sense in which Job is a little bit frustrated with God. But what we find here is that Job is very real about what he 
thinks and what he what he is feeling at this point. So we have to be careful with with what we do. We don't want to curse God. That that was what his wife told him to do. We don't want to do that. Instead, uh, Job curses the day of his birth and the night of his conception. We see the the further expression of his pain and suffering in verses 11 through 19, when Job wishes that he had been stillborn. Look at verse 11 again. Why did I not die at birth? Come forth from the womb. In other words, be born, but then expire, then die. Why did that not happen? I mean, if the day on which I was born could not be wiped off the calendar, if the night on which I was conceived could not be taken away, then why not when I was born? Why couldn't I just die right after I was born? It would have been much better than having to go through what I'm going through now. And as you know, Job's question here, why did I not die at birth, is never answered by the three friends. Job's three friends never explain why he didn't die at birth, why he had to live and go through this struggle. And at the end of Job's life, even God hadn't told him that. In all this discussion that God says, we'll see when we get to chapter uh, 38 through 42, we'll see that God comes down and says, Who am I, Job? Do I not have control over the entire world? And yet you want to have uh, you want to question me in the sense that you want to have a, a conversation with me and appeal to your innocence. And Job was innocent. Remember, God called him a righteous man. And that's why he presented him before um, Satan. Verse 12 reiterates his desire to have died at birth. I wish the knees of my mother during the birth, birthing process never received me is the idea there. I wish I never had my first meal. Verse 16 reads miscarriage in the, in the New American Standards, but probably is better translated stillborn as other translations have. Either way, the point is clear. Job wishes he did not make it to see the light of day. Well, why, Job? Why would you not want to have gone through life at all? Why would you possibly go that far in expressing your feelings. Look at verse 10. This is why he wanted that night wiped off the calendar and that night or that day and that night also. Because it did not shut, shut the opening of my mother's womb or hide trouble from my eyes. In other words, if I could have been spared from living at all, I would not have to live through this struggle that I'm going through now. If that day could have been wiped out, then great. If if that night would have been gone, then fine. <clears throat> if I would have died at birth, <clears throat> that would be much better than what I have to go through right now. Look at verse 13 because he tells a little bit more about why he w wishes he had died. For now, <clears throat> that is if he had died at birth, I would have lain down and been quiet. I would have slept then. I would have been at rest. Is that what Job's going through right now? I mean, that's ex exactly the opposite of what Job's going through. Look at verse 26. I am not at ease, nor am I quiet, but I am not at rest, but turmoil comes. If I would have died at birth, I would be at rest right now. I would be quiet. There would be no turmoil. I would be at ease. I would have comfort right now. If only that day had come. 
because Job recognized that struggle ended at death. Verses 14 through 19. Struggle ends at death. He says in verse 14 that there's no struggle for kings and counselors. In verse 15, there's no struggle for princes. There's no struggle for wicked. There's no struggle for the weary. There's no struggle for the prisoner in verse 18. There's no struggle for anyone, even the slave in the second part of verse 19. Why does Job think that there's no struggle at death? Not because he doesn't think that there's no life after death. But Job recognizes that it is the end of life's miseries. There's no hierarchy in death. That death is a very... um, it's, it's an equalizer of all things. It makes people on the same. It puts people on the same plane. As one writer said, all corpses look alike. It's a great equalizer. And his point is, is that there's order in death. There's no mystery about what he's going through right now. There's this great mystery that's going on right now. He is innocent, and yet he is treated as wicked. And yet in death the innocent are treated as innocent and the wicked are treated as wicked. You see, there's order in death. And so I wish I were, I were in that place right now. At least I would have some rest. And so the fact that Job wishes that he were dead over living suggests how great his pain is to us. We see the severity of his agony. That the most feared and unpleasant thing that we can imagine, which is death, would be much better, Job thinks, than actually living as he is now. And so it shows how deep his pain is. And we sing songs that reflect on this point, that we recognize that there are struggles, there are groanings in this life, that we long for a better life, that this isn't all that God has to offer for us, but there is a life to come that will be much greater. Just a few more weary days and then I'll fly away to a land where joy will never end. I'll fly away. I'll fly away, O glory. I'll fly away. When I die, hallelujah, by and by, I'll fly away. Or another, as another writer puts it, another songwriter when surrounded by the blackness of the darkest night, oh, how lonely death can be. At the end of this long tunnel, there is a shining light, for death is swallowed up in victory. But just think of stepping on shore and finding it heaven, of touching a hand and finding it God's, of breathing new air and finding it celestial, of waking up in glory and finding it home. Job is struggling. And he wishes that he were at a place where there there was no more mystery, that all justice would be seen to be done and would be done as it should be done. And in this life, it's not like that for Job. So in the last part of the chapter, verses 20 through 26, he questions his suffering. He begins by asking the question, verses 20 through 23, why do the sufferers live? In verses 2 through 19, he makes the statement, I wish I were never born. 
so that I wouldn't have to struggle. struggle. And then here in verses 20 through 26, he says, I wish I, I wish I were never born. But here he says, why was I born? Why did this hap- have to happen? And so Job uses a series of rhetorical questions to vocalize his longing for death. Notice in verse 20, why is light given to him who suffers and life to the bitter of soul? Who long for death, but there is none. See, Job is not talking here about committing suicide. He never intimates that he's going to kill himself in any way. But I hope you recognize that there is a fine line between committing suicide and wanting to to commit suicide, to wanting to be dead. Job doesn't seem to consider it. But what we should understand is that Job... We shouldn't understand that Job has no uh, hope in the afterlife. Rather, we should recognize that Job does have hope. Look at chapter 19. Because we'll see later as they go through this conversation, this ongoing conversation, that Job does have hope after death. Job recognizes that beyond the grave that there is justice. Everything is made right. There is order. Look at chapter 19, verse 25. This is Job speaking. And he says, As for me, I know that my Redeemer lives. And at the last, He will take His stand on the earth, even after my skin is destroyed. Yet from my flesh I shall see God, whom I myself shall behold, and whom my eyes shall see, and not another, my heart faints within me. He recognizes that he will be redeemed from all of his misery. Even if it doesn't come until after he dies, he recognizes that his Redeemer lives. And that he will stand on that last day. And that's where his hope is. Now this confidence that Job has doesn't answer all of his theological problems. We'll see this in the, in the ongoing conversation that begins in chapter 4. All of his questions are not answered, but he is able to have hope that God is just and one day will be seen to be just by all people. And that is in the life to come. But until that time, Job recognizes, look at verse 23 of chapter 3, that God has hedged him in. Ironically, Satan charged God with putting a hedge around Job. That Job, you, you Job, or he, he says to God, God, you have protected Job with this hedge of prosperity. He's got a great family. He's got a lot of possessions. He's got good health. Of course, he's going to serve you. Chapter one, verse ten. Now Job says, the hedge that I feel is around me is a hedge of suffering. I feel like I can't get out. God has this wall all the way around me and I can't get out. So he says in verses 24 through 26, why do I even live? Verse 24, he groans at the sight of his food. His groaning overpowers his appetite because he is in so much pain and grief. That's why it says that he cries out. A word that was used to refer to the roar of a lion. So he has this loud groaning. And he says in verse 25, 
For what I fear comes upon me, and what I dread befalls me. In other words, the things that I had always feared, things that that were the, the worst nightmares that I would ever have, they're all coming true right now. My family's gone. My possessions are gone. And I can't even take a breath. In another passage, I think it's later on, uh, chapter 6 or 7, I think it is, he says, I can't even swallow my spittle. God's judgment is so... Or not His judgment, but the, the suffering that I have from God is so deep and real. I can't even take a breath. And the object of Job's greatest fear was that he would lose favor with God. This is what Job is feeling right now. That he feels as if all hope is is beginning to be lost. That his relationship with God seems to be marred now. And so in verse 26, he summarizes his grief. I am not at ease, nor am I quiet or settled. And I am not at rest, but turmoil comes. I can't relax. I can't settle. I can't rest. And in this agitation, the idea of the verb there is that it keeps on coming. The turmoil keeps on coming like like waves coming, crashing on the shore. Job can't even get an opportunity to take a breath. And so in this chapter, we see the reality of life as a believer. That there's no utopian optimism that says, when you become a believer, everything is just going to be fine. And if it's not fine, then it's something that you have done. There's no optimism in that way. What we see is the utter despair of a true believer who is experiencing real pain in life. But we also shouldn't have an apathetic pessimism either that we we just say to other people and maybe even to ourselves, you know, just get ready for the pain because the suffering is going to come. Deal with it. Rather, we we have a Bible that teaches that that the goodness of God will finally win and that we must put our hope in this good God. And until that time comes for the final victory, when all things will be made right, when God separates the sheep from the goats, the, the wheat from the tares, until that time, we have to recognize that there will be trouble because we live in a world that is hating God, that hates and is in rebellion against God. I want to give you four points of application, hopefully that we can learn from this chapter. And many of these are taken from Dr. D.A. Carson's book, How Long, O Lord? A Reflection on Pain and Suffering. Number one, suffering is real. Suffering is real. Just because we put our confidence in a future resurrection doesn't mean that we ignore the hurt of suffering. Jesus didn't say as He was on His way to the cross, oh, this ought to be fun. Let's get this on. I'm really looking forward to this. Instead, we see that He's praying with deep grief and asks His Father, please let this cup pass from Me. Sometimes we tell ourselves that we need to have a stiff upper lip when trials come, but Job, the most righteous man, remember he was the greatest man on the earth at that time. God presented him as this in this way. This greatest believer of his day was in despair and didn't hide it. And so, as I've said before, when trials come, when suffering comes, don't worry about having a stiff upper lip. Let the tears flow. 
It's the expression of a true human being. First of all, suffering is real. Secondly, we have to be careful about condemning other believers so quickly. With Job, we have to listen carefully and attentively and fearfully to what is going on. When we come across those who for good reason are in terrible despair, we must cut them some slack and recognize that they're going through real pain. Wouldn't it have been great if one of Job's friends put his arm around him and said, you know, Job, I really love you. I don't pretend to understand. I've never gone through what you've gone through. But I love you and I'll do whatever I can for you. And yet, none of his friends did that. They they condemned him from the very beginning that this must be because of your sin that you are suffering. We don't need to condemn people in the midst of their trials. Job's wife was ready to give up. His friends were ready to accuse him. Be honest about your pain. Be honest about your suffering. Be careful with how you condemn other people so quickly when you don't know all the facts. Number three, be like Job. Don't abandon your faith in God. Job does curse the day of his birth. He curses the night of his conception, but he never curses God. Don't abandon your faith in God. The reason that Job is having such a hard time is not necessarily because of the pain itself, but because he knows that God is there. He knows that God is loving, and there's this deep mystery in his heart that that asks, asks, why is this here? Why, if God is loving and He's sovereign, is this happening to me? And it's because of his love for God and his belief that God was in control of all things that it was so hard to deal with. All these struggles are the struggles of a believer. And that's why Job from the very beginning praises God for these struggles. He was not perfect. He later has to repent for his attitude towards God, wanting to have a counsel with him, wanting to sit down and have an arbitrator between him. But at this point, he speaks within a right framework, framework, real grief. Number four, there's a mystery in God's providence. At no time in Job's life does he know why any of this is happening. God doesn't tell Job about the challenge that Satan had or the, the, the fact that God put Job up as a trophy of His grace. At no time before, during, or after does Job ever know the precise reason why he is being treated as he is. What God's trying to prove is that my people can serve me even when they don't know the answers. That they can serve me even when they don't know what's going on because they love me for me. They fear me. They recognize that I am the greatest thing in this world. So we must recognize with Job that God's plans are supreme. 
Job will see this much more clearly when he hears God speak to him directly. If you know the end of the story, you know that Job's why questions are never answered. But even still, Job will accept that because he, he will accept these facts that he doesn't know because he's happy that he sees things in proper perspective after God comes and says, Job, who are you to question me or what I have done? Job repents before God. So the hope that we have, even in the most agonizing suffering, is that God is there. And perhaps an even greater hope that we have is that the worst suffering that has ever been experienced has been experienced by Jesus Christ when He suffered because of your sin. When He took upon Himself the wrath that you and I deserved. And so the great news for us is that we don't have to fear that greatest suffering. We don't have to fear that greatest wrath because Christ has already taken it upon Himself. You may never know why you are going through what you're going through. But God does. And God has a great purpose in it. And God loves you. And He wants to see you be a trophy of His grace. So please stand up and show that you love God and that you fear Him for Him even when you don't know the answers. Let's bow together for prayer. Father, it's very easy to be on the outside looking into other people's suffering and to be a cynic and to have all the answers. But like with Job's friends, they knew nothing of what kind of things may be going on in heaven. Lord, we understand that that some of our sin is a result of our own disobedience, that that You do uh, discipline those whom You love. But other times, we recognize that there is innocent suffering as we saw here with Job and most notably our Savior Jesus Christ that there's nothing that He deserved to earn Your wrath. And so because there is a category for innocent suffering, I pray that You would help us to be sensitive to those who are going through trials. us to show love and care for them. Help us to be good followers of You and bear their burdens with them. understand fully the grief and the pain that they're going through, but I pray that you would help us to comfort them as best we can.
give us the grace, Lord, we pray. We need You. Thank You for being there for us in the deepest of trials. May You strengthen those who are currently going through dark times right now. May You give us the grace to stand up with You, to follow Jesus outside the camp, to suffer approach with Him for the sake of His name. Be willing to be put on display for the world to see even in the worst of times so that we can show that we serve a God who is worthy of being served no matter what comes our way. Pray for your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.